0: Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason.
1: And my name is David Parker. David. Who is John Galt? (laughs) Is he really a person or is he just an idea? (laughs) I have
0: actually been saying that uh, to kids at work.
1: (laughs) Who is John Galt? (laughs) Yeah. Well, like
0: when they ask me a question that I... Well, maybe we should narrow this down. Yes. Hello, everybody out there. (laughs) Before we get too nerdy here, we're we're talking about the novel Atlas Shrugged
1: <laughs> by Ayn Rand. By Ayn
0: Rand, and the very
1: first line in the basically novel. her manifesto on yes. how the world should work.
0: And does it manifesto? Oh, oh my god! Does goodness. it ramble? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you can tell by our tone, we have much to say about this book. However, the very first line of the book is a question: Who is John Galt? And my interpretation of that question, the meaning of it is. Who's who could possibly know this answer to the question you're asking me? So I'm going to ask you a question with an equal inability for you to answer it.
1: Right. I don't know. Is that kind of what it seems like to you? Well, yeah, it does. It seems like. I mean, obviously, throughout the book, there is there is a character named John Gulp. which we I, find who <laughs> the expression is named after. But I think there's actually more significance to it than even that, and uh-huh. it's it's a question of what is this idea that this person's supposed to represent? Oh, uh, Okay, and yeah. that that does get played out. Throughout the yes, book. Yes, you're right. I mean, a lot of my friends are libertarians, so mm. this book is, is often read by them and I The and, Bible. <laughs> and and they would and I think the that is a common joke among people sure. who are, are nerd out on this thing, like yeah. who is David Parker? Who is Josh? Yeah,
0: I think you're probably right. I do think as the book goes on, and especially as we learn more about the character John Galt, the question does take on that more who is this kind of heroic person and what are the characteristics and why do i keep hearing this name
1: i think that's kind of a maybe a cultural Mm -hmm. uh touchstone that has happened from this book where it's like why why do i keep hearing about this person and i have no idea who it is because really that's what's happening to so many of the characters they keep hearing about him yeah 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 though but he's so mysterious and like unknown so
0: that interpretation of it though i think that's a little bit more said by the characters who are in the know yes (laughs) about yes this right the, uh, the the producers or the or the world movers. The colloquialism is, yeah. is
1: more, uh, I can't answer that question. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah.
0: And so when I jokingly say it to kids at work who are so far removed from understanding what I talk about anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> let alone this, uh, they'll ask me a question. I'll be like, who's John Galt? And I'm just answering it in a way it's like, I have no answer to your question. So I'm going to give a question to you that you can't have an answer for so that you understand
1: how I feel about your question. Right, <laughs> right. And do they get it? Does it get through to them? Well,
0: no. I mean, it, it does. Uh, not really. <laughs> the little <laughs> but, joys of being Luke Mason. <laughs> yeah. Well, so my philosophy with the kids at work is 50% of the time entertained, 50% of the time confused. <laughs> and, and
1: the 50% of the confusion is for your benefit, right?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, partly educational, but mostly just... I have this little shtick with the kids at work where they'll ask me a question and I'll give them an answer I'd give to an adult. Right, right. <laughs> not, not like adult-themed, obviously, but uh, adult intelligence. And then they're like, what? And then I explain it again in English, they, they can it. understand. <laughs> yeah, no. just I don't leave kids hanging right. <laughs> with uh, questions <laughs> and confusion. But I do start that way. <laughs> so anyway, here we go. Here we go. Lay it out for us, Luke. There is so much to talk about in this book. This is the second time I've read it for this podcast. I read it, I think, about five years ago for the first time. And then again for this. And I honestly don't know where to start. <laughs> Shorthand, I think it's an important book. I, I would say so. I think it's one of those books that it's a net positive to the world that it was written. Right. Right? Yeah. I'd agree with that. That would be how I would phrase it there is so much of this book that didn't need to be written. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it should be I mean we're we're a podcast that tends to talk about books that we really enjoy, and we find yes. are well written and the imagery is great and the characters are are in, you know, interesting. This is not one of those books. No. Um, I
0: I don't think I've ever read a book that I think is this important and this boring. Yeah, like
1: <laughs> you know, it's very preachy. Yeah, like you're reading a pamphlet.
0: So, okay, here's the fact of the matter: is that we did Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is a great thinker and a great writer. Yes, we did Dickens. Dickens is a great thinker and a great writer. Here we've done Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is a great thinker and a terrible writer. <laughs> like quite bad this (laughs) this the prose of atlas or or maybe
1: not even a terrible writer because she has some good prose okay i would say she cannot craft a narrative it's just bad literature it's bad (laughs) literature yes right her good characters are
0: too good her bad characters are too bad there aren't really any characters in
1: between and so here's what here's what i took away from it they're not human no there's no humanity there's just ideas yeah
0: Pure, like almost platonic yeah, forms platonic of the ideas. ideas. <laughs> That's
1: how I was going to say that. This is a platonic book.
0: And on top of all of that, the edition that we have, uh, it's the Signet. It's the Signet 50th anniversary edition. So Atlas Shrugged was published in 1957. So the Signet one we have, I think it clocks in at 1,069
1: pages. And these are not like big. <laughs> Large-lettered yeah. pages. <laughs> no, like, this is, like, biblical. The font tiny.
0: <laughs> so this is probably the longest novel we've done so far on yep. this podcast. Yeah. And the least interesting. <laughs> and you know what? Well, Here's... okay,
1: not the least interesting. Uh, The least, <laughs> the least uh, enjoyable. The least enjoyable to read as yes, an experience. exactly. Exactly. This is not an experiential and, book.
0: And I don't even want to... I think probably a, a better criticism, because I'm whinging a bit on this... A better criticism is that I think probably all of the most important ideas that she gets through in a book, she could have gone through in a 300-page book. Yeah, like she's I, she's long-winded. It's very long-winded. There are sections. I mean, John Galt's speech is like 80 pages. I know, the mountain, as me and my friends <laughs> Jesus. call it. like,
1: it's, like, it's not a fun thing to read, but it's a, like an accomplishment when you get to the top.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and there are just these these scenes that are they drag out and out in conversations that are just so long. And you're like, I get it. I get who I'm supposed to like. I get who I'm not supposed to like.
1: Stop pounding this into my I head. I get
0: <laughs> why I'm not supposed to like them. <laughs> like, there's no mysteries here. You don't have to keep explaining to me reasons why I don't like Dr. Ferris or I don't like Stadler. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But she just keeps going. And going, and going. So it's like, there's a part of me that thinks she's just trolling us, you know? Like, I, I mean, wonder if yeah. there's some trolling
1: going on here, I think too. she took herself pretty seriously, though. Maybe,
0: but yeah. I, don't, I I have seen a few interviews with her, because she, um, okay, so a little, and this will be relevant, too, for the themes of this book and the philosophy of it, because this is essentially a book about philosophy. It's not a book about narrative, like you said. Yeah. So Ayn Rand, the author of Atlas Shrugged, was she was born in the Soviet Union. I'm pretty sure in nineteen oh five I looked that up on Wikipedia a few weeks ago. So she would have been twelve during the Bolshevik Revolution. So she was in the Soviet Union and, and witnessed the Bolsheviks coming to power firsthand as a young girl. And I think she left she left the Soviet Union around age twenty to go to the United States on a like a student visa. And then just never came back. Like she figured out how to not get deported. Yeah, And yep. then lived <laughs> the rest of her life in America. So it's interesting. She spent the first twenty years of her life in well, you know. Post revolutionary well, no. I mean twelve years in the end of the czarist
1: and part then of eight Russia. Twelve years in the after in, the Bolsheviks. Yeah.
0: And so she would have been privy firsthand to what left wing power groups would have been like. And interestingly, in a way that I don't think anyone in America could say now is um powerful violent left wing power groups
1: yeah right well, who were in like con- complete control of the yes. mechanisms of the who state who weren't who weren't the
0: uh people complaining to the state but who were the state yes. and so she got yeah. to see a lot of those travesties because you don't need us to spell out. <laughs> yeah, hopefully,
1: yeah. everyone here. Knows well, you know how I mean bad you can it just was, go yeah.
0: read a lot about what happened in the Soviet Union. So anyway, obviously, that influenced her so much in what she wrote about because she basically, she kind of became the apex American,
1: in yeah. a sense, you know, yeah. like or she like, kind of, or, the, or at least the praising the the virtues of capitalism yeah. to like the most extreme. Yeah,
0: she took tu- she took the idea of life and specifically liberty to its f- the furthest it could possibly like go personal responsibility yeah. is like
1: her yeah. most important value I would and
0: say. so and i even remember someone saying that and i guess maybe not now with hitchens and harris having come to the fray but she had been known for a long time as america's most famous atheist so she was kind of of that era you know so she she kind of came of age in the 40s 50s 60s in america and was writing about capitalism and she invented or came up with this she's a better philosopher than she is a novelist
1: well yeah let's take a moment and read the uh her kind of summary of what objectivism is for the for those who haven't read this i know there'll be some of you and then as a reminder for those who have
0: yeah so objectivism is the philosophy of ayn rand she spelled it out in other books more specifically but atlas shrugged is a perfect distillation of it in a fiction form which is interesting i do have to say like i can't are there any other famous philosophers whose philosophical ideas are manifested through a novel Maybe George Orwell, I guess, but I wouldn't ever have called him a philosopher. He is not
1: really; a, he's a novelist, yeah,
0: and an essayist.
1: I think. Well, maybe one of the things that we're we're always trying to do here is <laughs> point out that all authors are sure. somewhat philosophers, sure. uh, or at least psychologists, or <laughs> yeah. whatever we yeah, want yeah. to. I mean, a lot of people have said that dostoevsky has the best ha- had the best handle on the human psychology of any writer, right? Right. And yeah. So, was he a philosopher? Well, I don't know, but. I think all novelists are to some extent. She just took it to the extreme of actually coming up with and articulating a mm-hmm. philosophy originally through a novel, <laughs> yeah. which I don't think most have done. No,
0: I, yeah. I don't. I mean, the thing is that it's, she's so, it's so blatant. There aren't many novels that are philosophic that are this blatant. No, none that I know. <laughs> I, I don't know any. Yeah. Maybe they're out there. but And uh, yeah. I think that's part of why it's hard to read is because there isn't any subtlety.
1: Yeah, to what's going on. Like one of the things I love about reading novels is is that the (laughs) the ideas will sometimes get under my reason and then like worm their way into my head. Yeah, that that doesn't happen with this one.
0: Everything in this book is at the level of consciousness. Yes, Yes. (laughs) yeah. There's no subconscious shit going on, which I can't complain too much about if I'm wanting to take the philosophy seriously. So, David and I were joking before we started recording how. Everybody who has read Atlas Shrugged listening to this has read it before this podcast, and no one who hasn't read it will read it after this podcast, <laughs> and we encourage that. If you haven't read Atlas Shrugged, do yourself a favor. Do not read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> Let us do it for you. <laughs> and we'll tell you about <laughs> it. We'll tell you about <laughs> it. And if you want to learn more, like you could just read some articles about it, because this is a almost 1,100-page book. <laughs> So anyway, objectivism. At the end of Atlas Shrugged, there's a little section here of Ayn Rand herself distillating. Objectivism. And she was once asked if she could present the essence of objectivism while standing on one foot. And her answer was, one, metaphysics, objective reality. (laughs) Two, epistemology, reason. Three, ethics, self-interest. And four, politics, capitalism. She then translated those terms into familiar language. One, nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. Two, you can't eat your cake and have it. Two, three, man is an end in himself. And four, give me liberty or give me death. So there's some expanding of that too. So metaphysics, I know we've talked about it a lot here, just I, for anyone listening to metaphysics is an idea and philosophy of what really exists (laughs) like what exists beyond the scene the sense data-driven world She's saying nothing. She's saying, yeah, like, that's what it is. So, reality, the external world, exists independent of man's consciousness, independent of any observer's knowledge, beliefs, feelings, desires, or fears. This means that A is A, that facts are facts, and that things are what they are, and that the task of man's consciousness is to perceive reality, not to create or invent it. Thus, objectivism rejects any belief in the supernatural and any claim that individuals or groups create their own reality. So... For someone like Ayn Rand <laughs> or an objectivist, if the tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, it makes vibrations in the air. In the air that if there was a person there, would call sand. But since there's not, it doesn't matter what you call it, the reverberations still happen. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> that qu- yeah, the question becomes unimportant.
0: Yes. Epistemology. So, this is the study in philosophy of how we know what we know, how we come about methodologically getting knowledge. So she writes, man's reason is fully competent to know the facts of reality. Reason, the conceptual faculty, is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by man's senses. Reason is man's only means of acquiring knowledge. Thus, objectivism rejects mysticism, any acceptance of faith or feeling as a means of knowledge, and it rejects skepticism, the claim that certainty or knowledge is impossible. So she loves Aristotle. (laughs)
1: Loves Aristotle. All three parts of the book.
0: Yeah, all three parts of the book are kind of nods to different parts of Aristotle's philosophy. So she references him a few times in the book. Number three, human nature. Man is a rational being. Reason, as man's only means of knowledge, is his basic means of survival. But the exercise of reason depends on each individual's choice. Man is a being of volitional consciousness. That which you call your soul or spirit is your consciousness. And that which you call your free will is your mind's freedom to think or not the only will you have, your only freedom. This is the choice that controls all the choices you make and determines your life and character. Thus, objectivism rejects any form of determinism, the belief that man is a victim of forces beyond his control, such as God, fate, upbringing, genes, or economic conditions. So actually, in that sense, it reminds me of existentialism. Yeah. The taking your facticity as what you have, like, no one can control that anyway, so then it's what you do next, which is interesting. Ethics. Reason is man's only proper judge of values and his only proper guide to action. The proper standard of ethics is man's survival qua man, i.e. that which is required by man's nature for his survival as a rational being, not his momentary physical survival as a mindless brute rationality is man's basic virtue and his three fundamental values are reason, purpose, and self-esteem. Man, every man, is an end in himself, not a means to the ends of others. He must live for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself. He must work for his rational self-interest with the achievement of this own happiness as the highest moral purpose of his life. Thus, objectivism rejects any form of altruism. (laughs) The claim that the the claim that morality consists of living for others or for society. Now, I think this is the point that has made Ayn Rand a villain yeah, <laughs> in yeah. popular culture or people who
1: maybe don't study Ayn Rand deeply. Or yeah, capitalism. I, yeah, or, or capitalism, right? this, this is the This is the heartless right. side of things. And she, she is the best articulation of why there is a heartlessness to capitalism.
0: Yes. I'll just put a flag here. I had a weird experience reading this book with this particular part of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and it was this. I think she's probably a little bit misunderstood. I think that she has some good points there that could be fleshed out better if properly discussed i think she does a horrible job of doing that <laughs> i think she is one of the worst uh, of this specific the ethics part of her philosophy i think she's one of the worst speakers for it <laughs> yeah she's, <laughs> like she's not she's not caring no she, she has no uh empathy she didn't seem to see why other people would think that this part was weird like no yeah i think she's a big blind spot for yeah her for sure. she got kind of caught up in this like she, she's been I mean, she wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. She's been deemed to be the queen of selfishness. like, And so I think conceptually, it's useful having a difference of category between selfishness and
1: self-interest that I don't think she worked very hard to differentiate. <laughs> <laughs> she also worships independence yeah. in a way and sees contractual relationships as the only kind of important, like, yes, yeah, only yeah. mutually beneficial agreements mm-hmm. are, are a, a real thing. Mm.
0: I will say, I think, we'll talk about this more when we get to the characters, that is developed well in the psychology of her heroes. Yes. I do, I do think she does get to the first person better. Than the social through the novel. That's yeah. one of the strengths of the novel. Actually, I think that's
1: probably why she wrote it as a novel because she wanted yeah. to. I think she has to. She's smart enough to know that what the criticisms would be, right? And so, and this might be why she went the platonic route of of making her heroes, you know, so perfect and her villains so awful. Yeah. But I also, from what I understand about her, that's how she saw herself, mm. right? Yeah. And, and there was moments of cognitive dissonance that that really bothered her. Sure but I think she truly believed. And it's not hard to see that delusion in other kinds of people. Right. What I like about Ayn Rand is what I like about science, which is that she's really testing a theory, taking it to its limits, and showing us another way of looking at things mm-hmm. that we would that most of us would never, would never have done.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll get into all of that because it is interesting. And I actually... I did... i enjoyed a lot of this book it's maybe hard to tell from my tone so far but there was a lot of especially hank's first person musing like when we get hank's perspective in the book i loved it i really thought it was so the best explanation of objectivism in a person's life it was so good and then lastly politics the basic social principle of the objectivist ethics is that no man has the right to seek values from others by means of physical force i.e. no man or group has the right to initiate the use of physical force against others men have the right to use force only in self-defense and only against those who initiate its use Men must deal with one another as traitors, giving value for value, by free mutual consent to mutual benefit. The only social system that bars physical force from human relationships is laissez-faire capitalism. Capitalism is a system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which the only function of the government is to protect individual rights, i.e. to protect men from those who initiate the use of physical force. Thus, objectivism rejects any form of collectivism such as fascism or socialism. It also rejects the current mixed economy notion that the government should regulate the economy and redistribute wealth. <laughs>
1: now, So this is, that this is part, pure capitalism in the sense yes. that, that she wants as much purity in, this, in the ideology of capitalism as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think probably that has been her strongest legacy in the American culture. Certainly, is yeah, certainly, I think, undoubtedly
0: yes. The um,
1: I, I don't mean, think I don't her kn- philosophy is well understood, but her no. take on capitalism is and, very well,
0: understood. and its influence on American libertarianism.
1: And a lot of this is taken from like from economists like Hayek and Milton Friedman, and and, and has been built out into economic structures too. But she's definitely one of the largest voices on this mm. particular topic.
0: And I don't know the history of it very well, but. I think she basically started the American Libertarian, <laughs> at least of what we as would, they understand themselves. Uh, I think, yeah, so, yeah, as we would see it today, the the faction of probably the Republican Party that is libertarian, which and you'll know this better, but the uh, to me libertarianism is a specifically political term because it it's a pure rejection of government as opposed to like conscience or first person, it's all kind of third person, like, don't don't take my shit. Yeah, don't tread right? on me kind Like, of thing, And yeah. libertarians are so extreme that the government, what right does the government have to issue driver's licenses? My Why favorite, do they get to keep favorite, track of our yeah. cars? My <laughs> favorite
1: uh, example of a libertarian in popular culture is uh, from Parks and Recreation. Oh, right. Yes, and I think... Uh, Was it uh, uh, Ron Swanson? Yeah, like, Ron Swanson is, uh, he's the funny... Mm. articulation of uh, perhaps a, a deeply held principle and belief. And and how does someone like that function in a world that right. doesn't uh, take him seriously? Yeah. And then and, and the best part
0: is that he works for the government. Yes, the of course. <laughs> well, there are still some ironies woven into the fabric of existence, aren't there, Davis? <laughs> uh, a few, one or two. And I guess just before we really dive into this book, I do find myself feeling so attached to the non-initiation of violence that she preaches. To me, it's one of the strongest parts of the book is you'd never use violence to solve a problem ever. Like No matter, no matter you what, you don't do it. And she seemingly has a great... break. Okay, here I am telling a lot of what she did well <laughs> in a book I had a hard time with. The intricacies of how violence can be implied or suggested at hinted at double talked to she's so good at that at, at showing yeah, she, how she kind of p-
1: rips the veil off of yeah, this idea exactly of good. what i love about her and i think why she's so endearing to so many people i mean we've talked about this before Rap poison is 99 percent good food so much of what she writes whether it be about sex or government or relationships is dead on yeah. Like it's just dead on. Like yes. when she when she says, and I'll see if I can quote this just off the top of my head, but when she says, you know, show me what a man is attracted to and I'll tell you his entire philosophy of life. Yeah. Show me the woman he sleeps with and I'll tell you the value his valuation of himself. Right. Yeah. Like Yeah. It doesn't get much it's more great. profound than oh, that. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Uh, or or when she's pointing out how governments leech or people in general leech off productive members of society. I mean, the very title of the book, Atlas Shrugged, yes, is the idea that the people holding up society are just like, okay, yeah, I'm done now. Unfortunately for her, and uh, I'm going to get probably in trouble for saying this. Well, you'll be re- fine. Reality's too complex for that, right? I'm, yeah, this is the problem I have with uh, like any philosophy or or worldview that tries to fully encapsulate reality and say these are the mm. rules that dictate reality. Well I'm sorry, going back to our senses, they're limited. We're yeah. finite. Yeah. Like why create a filter that with which we say this is just how everything works?
0: There's so much randomness in the system that it's so hard to predict.
1: Anyway, we'll get into that later. What I do love is she's so right on violence yes i think i think it is i agree with you and
0: and it's like okay there's an immediate well of course you don't use violence like and and if you conceive of it as like you don't punch you don't kick you don't shoot a gun i felt like i was pretty educated by reading this book is she shows the wizard
1: behind every curtain of all of these implicated violence. Well, even like prison, <laughs> right? prison yeah. is a form of violence. It is a, it because her mm-hmm. argument would obviously be if your freedom is taken away from you, that is a form of violence. Yes, if yeah. you are, and I mean, duh, that's what slavery is, yes. right? Yeah, but showing. How the government uses violence to control people through intense
0: bureaucracies, exactly, and
1: nepotism,
0: and I don't even know. There's no technical word like being fucking weasels. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, like just I mean,
1: being shitty people. And, and she, so it's it's that if Donald Trump wasn't so egregiously. Bad in so many ways mm. When he said things like Drain the swamp That's why it stuck with people Yeah Because there's swamps out yeah. there That need to be drained She's kind of saying that Right yeah. Like her thing is This is a swamp mm-hmm. It exists it, it leeches off of the productivity yeah. Of this class of people That she admires so greatly right. And I admire too mm-hmm. and, and not only that If they try to buck the system Like if they try to like Get out from under that burden Yeah Then violence is used Yeah
0: it's so interesting, and we'll talk about all of the the bureaucratic... I mean, the, uh, me, uh, probably Ayn Rand was a... She'd read up on her Kafka, I think, to have the kind of awareness of the bureaucratic nightmare that Kafka writes about so well, because Kafka was writing about 30 years before her, you know, he would have been a public intellectual that she would have been consuming out of all that time. And he was from the Czech Republic. So he was also an Eastern European who was seeing the world at that time. And, you know, he was a thinker, so he was in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, yeah. So so there was definitely Kafka esque influences on her and all of that. So I've, I found that really illuminating. So anyway, There's a lot of build-up for, we haven't even done the plot rundown yet of this book, but even before we do that, you brought up a, men- a second ago the, the title of the book, Atlas Shrugged, and I think it's worth noting, because it's actually really, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's actually one of the greatest titles. Yeah, of a know? book ever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> don't, ju- don't judge a title by its book, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a great title. So Atlas, obviously, was a, I believe, a titan who fought against Zeus and the gods in the Okay, now I'm forgetting my Greek mythology history a little bit. I think it's something called like the Titanokami or the Tidamechami. Anyway, it's a word like that, which was the battle between the Olympians and the Titans, right? And the Olympians ended up winning that war. And so Atlas, being the strongest Titan defeated, was punished for going against Zeus by having to hold the world on his back. Uh, So Atlas is the titan who had to hold the world up basically to keep it in the sky kind of idea right and actually i i learned this just recently i don't know it makes total sense like there's so much of our world and navigational language that is based around atlas like the atlantic ocean is named after atlas right <laughs> right? right i didn't yeah. Even think yeah the um you know like the an atlas <laughs> like right. like traveling by like using the stars and stuff like that or a like a map kind of thing so that whole kind of area of thought is inspired by his name which i love learning about that kind of stuff that the, yeah, Gre- the that the Greeks the gave us things, yeah, yeah. yeah so anyway in an analogy into this book atlas shrugged is the idea that all of the people who are holding up the world just stop doing that. They stop giving their talent and their expertise, their innovation, and their forward-thinking visionariness. They just stop doing that because the world isn't rewarding them and it's not worth their time, basically. <laughs> and they're getting punished for it. That's actually one of the most and important used and, and used and punished yeah. for their – for their, there's a line. They're not punishing you for your vices, Hank. They're punishing you for
1: your virtues. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is one of the the insights that I think is yes. so profound in this book is that she talks a lot about how our vices are used against us by people yeah. in order to control us.
0: Mm-hmm. So, since you read this book more recently than me, do you want to uh... do your... Well, well, the thing is, I read this book like six weeks ago from recording, and you've read it about two weeks ago. Yeah. So we will definitely have all of the main points in mind, and I've made a lot of notes, but... A thorough plot rundown is probably impossible
1: and not needed.
0: There are the broad strokes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Oof. It's <laughs> hard to keep it all in my head. Yeah. Well, um, we'll do it together. Yeah. I mean, we start off, we're introduced to Dagny when she's young. Yeah. And to various love interests that she has. And care. And, and one of the things I love about this book is Ayn Rand's passion for women. Yeah. Um, true. Like, true. Like, there's that great... Uh, iconic line where it's like she was 12 when she told eddie that she would run a railroad mm-hmm. and it was not until she was 15 that she realized running railroads wasn't something that women did yeah and then she said to hell with that and never thought about right. it again
0: yeah and so Dagny taggart is arguably the main character i would say her and hank are kind of co-main characters for a lot of the book john gulp becomes the main yeah, character <laughs> yeah i but i i would say on balance we
1: probably get dagny's perspective the most in the book and hers is potentially the most confused at first mm. she knows what she values and she has as with all of Ayn Rand's characters in this book uh, or all her heroes rather they are people of, of conviction and principle mm-hmm. unbreaking conviction that, that there's a certain way the world works and that there's a, there is a right and a wrong and but the right and the wrong is very materialistic like it's not as, as we pointed out earlier metaphysical at all Anyway, so she begins her journey into oh well, we, we follow her. Uh, there's the great scene with the tree. Again, there are great scenes in this book uh, where the lightning strikes the tree and then it turns out that it was rotten from the core. like this great, powerful looking thing had been destroyed from being destroyed and was empty and broken from the very beginning. And that symbolism of that is kind of what this book is all about because essentially the main character, is actually the United States. Hmm. Uh, some dystopian future of the United States yeah. in which all of the evils that Ayn Rand lays out of bureaucracy of of freeloaders of um, basically her fear of communism taking over the United States. Yes, but like but this even more uh, pathetic version of communism <laughs> that is just a slow cancerous rot right. as opposed to a revolution.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, bureaucratic Bolsheviks not warlike ones
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah and this is all kind of told through the story of Dagny's rise in this railroad empire that her family's a part of and she goes through a number of different steps in which she kind of takes over that and Mm. and begins to revolutionize yeah because of her innovation and brilliance and yeah and thoughtfulness and, and and attention to detail uh, she begins to revolutionize this this railroad business. Yeah. And the entire industry. The entire industry. Because she's that much better. Yeah. Um, and, her, she and, is so meritorious yes. that she's changing an entire and industry. And
0: she knows how to find other people as meritorious as her to give her the product she wants. Even if all of her safety officers and everyone are saying, don't
1: use that stuff.
0: It's Which not tested. Which is how we meet
1: Hank. <laughs> yes. Uh, but... Uh, but going back for a moment on that, the the thing that I find fascinating is we know these people exist, and uh, we've seen the the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk's, the the Bill Gates, the people, uh, the Rockefellers. People revolutionize industries all the time, and these are the people that are Ayn Rand's heroes. Yes, and so right. they are the people that mm-hmm. that, that Dagny is supposed to be, or Danny, as she's often called in the book. Mm. Uh, these are the people that she's kind of. Mirrored after, yeah. so she, so she's building this, but but there's this nefarious underground <laughs> of regulation, and and these these yeah. people in government or otherwise. And importantly,
0: she's not actually the president. Of the railroad, she's the vice president,
1: and her brother is the president. And her brother's one of these slimy, yeah. useless individuals. Just never-ending excuses. Who, who, who likes to leech off the system and loves loves the cocktail parties and the prestige. It loves being the president of a company. Yeah. And we all know people like this. They have no real interest in the thing they're doing. It's They like being something, and they don't like doing something.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a more serious—or it's an attempt in fiction— that's taking itself more seriously that I think Arrested Development does hilariously and without taking itself too seriously when it makes Job, the president of the blue company, but Michael is the actual president. He's doing all the work, but he doesn't have the
1: title. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, we, I mean, I I think that uh, this book does that incredibly well, uh, laying out the kind of the characteristics of that person like that. And again, no redeeming qualities to these people so it's hard None. zero <laughs> zero redeeming qualities for
0: any of her villains
1: yeah so so it's hard to uh, to even connect with them on a human level in some ways you just kind of despise them like this is very much a like Dichotomous philosophy in which you know there's the good guys and the bad guys and ne- ne'er the two should cross paths <laughs> yeah. or have any kind of empathy for one another. It,
0: it, I honestly couldn't believe that any like how are these people in the same world as each
1: other? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and so well, I mean, I guess that's part of her point is they don't they don't seem to be able to exist in the same world as one another, right? Uh, Touche. Uh, so so Dagny she meets Hank uh, and they begin working together and they're mm-hmm. and doing some incredible things because Hank produces steel and she needs better railway tie, or she needs better railways for her trains to go faster to improve their um, efficiency to increase profits you know and help industry in general and so they they actually come to really admire one another and then begin an affair but hank's married and so like Hank's big moral quandary in all of this is that he's also a titan of industry Mm -hmm. uh, and has revolutionized steel to make it cheaper. I mean, essentially, Hank's done with steel... What Elon Musk did with the with rocket launching, right? He's yeah. reduced the price and made it better, mm-hmm. stronger and, but cheaper. Exactly, <laughs> like more launches, yeah. But, ten, but he
0: has the only patent,
1: right? Kind and, of, and and so and uh, and this is causing a lot of problems in the steel industry, just like Denny stuff is causing problems in the. In the transportation and logistics mm. industry, because they're, they're so, so much better, they're, they're so s- much yeah. better that they now have enemies.
0: Yeah, who don't want to compete with them? They don't want.
1: To, they they just want to continue to status quo. Like they don't care about innovation. Fat cat. They're very happy with the way the world works right now because they're on top. And so, what begins to happen? Uh, we have this these amazing scenes which we can talk about later, where Hank comes to the realization that pretty much everyone else in his life is. Awful, and only Dagny's any good. Yeah. And uh, he ends up kind of giving the middle finger to all these people around him. But what happens to both of them is they kind of get squeezed out by these people using these nefarious forms of violence to destroy this innovation so that they can maintain their status quo, which is beneficial to them. But then... And this is maybe the most enjoyable part of the book. (laughs) Um, We begin to see what happens when innovation goes away. Goes away, which is basically when Atlas shrugs. Yeah, when (laughs) which is basically collapse. And underlying all of this, there's this John Galt fellow wandering around.
0: Because they, um, in the first third of the book. There's a scene where Dagny and Hank are together and they go to this abandoned factory in Wisconsin and they find this motor. And I mean, the science is not well explained or even attempted. It's not really the point, but it's like apparently this motor can
1: turn air static air into energy (laughs) yeah it's it's essentially like tesla's like perpetual energy machine like the the net zero situation however whatever the way it would be explained in the 1950s yes exactly (laughs) and no no no, i mean tesla not the company tesla oh right okay yeah yeah, yeah. supposedly invented a way to like produce energy Ah, essentially for free good distinction yes
0: and so they see something so good so they're trying to find the inventor of it which Kind of makes them go search all of these other places, which keeps them trying to find all uh, find who this inventor is, who eventually becomes John Galt. Um, they also have this other friend named Francisco Danconia. That's how yeah. I always pronounce his yeah. name in the book. Who is a Argentinian heir to like the copper, miner, copper mine,
1: copper yeah. mine, and he's like a playboy. Yeah. But the interesting thing about these, there's a lot of nuance in the heroes right? They're all yeah. actually quite different in their personalities, <laughs> yeah. which is another, fu- uh, there's an old uh, saying by GK Chesterton, which is talking about saints within the Catholicism. He's like, all the saints are so different mm, yeah. and they're all different faces of Christ is what he says. And I, and, and it's, I find that this is a fascinating thing that, uh, that people do when they're praising things. They'll bring up the yeah. nuance. You can be, you can be a lot of different ways to be great at this. Sure. Thing, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And she definitely does that. Like, Francisco is not anything like John Galt or Hank Reardon or no, Dagny, no. but like he's this playboy that is, I think the first person that Dagny falls in love with, if I remember correctly. And right. having us, but then he disappears.
0: Well, he's the, he's the best actor. Right. Out of all of them, because yes. actually it turns out that his playboy persona is a persona. He's been acting for like 15 and years. And he's been
1: planted there yeah. to specifically do that.
0: Because John Galt So apparently like 15 years previous, this young John Galt who had invented this motor quit this factory in Wisconsin because they were socializing basically. And he at that day started making a kind of utopia for the people who he calls like the people who move the world. Actually, as an aside, it's kind of interesting how dated this book is and its innovation and its technologies, hey, where it's, it's just worshiping railroads and steel industries. Yeah, it's and very, very... like and mining. And mining. And it's like, it's definitely of the 50s era of things and oil. And it's like, this book did not anticipate the internet. No. <laughs> it did not <laughs> anticipate the telecommunications revolution in any sense. So it's, it, everything is still read in newspapers. It's like, it's supposed to be this most advanced world ever, but they, like, they... You still have newspapers. They have exactly. newspapers. That's how they get... So anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's just a funny accidental dating of its, of his book, the yes, self, right? Yeah, yeah. And so John Galt has been planning this. He calls it Atlantis, another nod to Atlas there, I think of this place in the Colorado Rockies where it's hidden again from heat rays, not well explained and not really the point. So that basically what's happening throughout the book is that all of the titans of industry that Dagny and Hank work with are disappearing. They're just quitting giving up shop and they're just not in the public consciousness anymore they're not open for business and this is worrying for Dagny and Hank but it's terrifying for the government right (laughs) because because these are revenues aren't coming through anymore
1: and like industries are falling apart and Mm -hmm. they're just seeing societal collapse
0: yeah and so it turns out that all of these people are going to this Atlantis where there's no money, there's gold, but it's basically everyone's living for value. And we'll get into all of that a little bit later. But that's where all the the, the basically the good guys are going here and all the bad guys are starting to deteriorate in the world because all the good guys are leaving and not holding up the world anymore as Atlas would. Right. Kind they're of they're no longer allowed yeah, they're no longer allowing themselves yeah. to be used. And so after Dagny and Hank's affair becomes public knowledge through Dagny, which is one of my favorite parts of the book too, actually, there's a lot of I'm glad you brought it up because, and again, I hate these cliche terms, but I mean it in the strongest sense. Like, there's a lot of female empowerment in this book, Tons. <laughs> and the ugly side of the female side of things too. Yeah, I love it. It's so this book. I love that this book was written by a woman.
1: Well, that's the most interesting part of of Dagny's character. Like, there are scenes, like one of the most beautiful scenes. As, as much as I have kind of said that this isn't, that's why I said it's not bad writing. Because okay. when Dagny's like um, coming out party, right? Where, where the description of it mm. is incredible, like the the way that the conversations are described, the way that the environment is described, uh, it's really good writing. Sure, it's just that uh, then there's pages and pages <laughs> and pages. Okay, of-
0: I will. Uh, I I think probably a more accurate put it of how I feel is it's good writing about a lot of boring stuff. <laughs> Okay. There's a lot Fair of enough. boring explanations about steel yes. and yes. railroads and sociology classes and yeah. stuff like this. They're yeah. just like, whatever. <laughs> so as we find out, Francisco and John Galt and this other guy, Ragnar, I think his name is. He's Danish. These three guys met at school when they were in
1: university, and they were actually working together. And to... Ragnar's a bit of a pirate. Yes. Like he's, yeah. uh, he's kind of been... There's three... They're kind of like the holy trinity of this project, right? Yeah. One is the actor playboy, the other is the mysterious unknown, and the other is this kind of terrifying
0: yeah presence on the high seas. Yeah. Who
1: he uh, he
0: basically sinks all the ships that are stealing, as as far as they're concerned, yeah. like the tariffs yeah. and whatever. But they don't attack any military ships because it's the role of the government to protect its citizens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that kind of like like it's just it's like. This whole book, every character's final philosophy is so complete and polished, and they just know what to do in There's every basically situation. basically no dissonance at all. <laughs> no, like, it's so funny. The only
1: All issues f- towards their personal success coming <laughs> from external sources, yeah. not from internal sources. Yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. They're basically gods in human form who just have to deal with leeches yeah <laughs> it's, exactly it's, it's pretty funny yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's how you could tell it's a philosophical tome and not, not, a, no. not, not a psychological novel right <laughs> no. yeah and john galt has like a 80 page speech at the end which is really just the total uh, exposition of ayn rand's philosophy through the novel so really you could read that 80 page section of the book and, and then you'll know, get yeah. the whole book <laughs> but we read the whole book so <laughs> at the end They go to this Atlantis, and um, I think the last scene of the book, which I actually loved, I thought it was so good, is people getting off the train, like the Taggart transcontinental, what was it called? The Comet? Like the most advanced, technologically superior piece of machinery in all of human history at the time, to go join roving bands on horses, to go find their meals because civilization has completely collapsed collapsed because there's no one around to do good work anymore because everyone who's done good work has quit because they're not getting rewarded or treated right by the world hey everybody david and i just want to take a second to say thank you for listening Making this podcast has been a great experience and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening. Because, as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking.
1: And so. So. (laughs) Objectivism. Yeah. I think that this is an incredibly attractive philosophy to a certain kind of mind. Okay. And if I had to like divide that mind into three categories or three ways of viewing the world. So we'll go mm. how they view the world, how they view themselves, yeah. and then how they how they act in the world. Okay. So this mindset is a perversion I think of what Jordan Peterson pushes for all the time. And he's always pushing for radical personal responsibility. And I remember the first time I read this book, I think I was 17 or 8, maybe 18. And it it felt like a splash of water in the face. It was like, wow, I have blamed a lot of things on a lot of other people. Sure, yeah. And like, no, the greatness is within me. But that's part of the problem. So, so I'll go first with how the, a person views the world. Like we've talked in the podcast before about um, you can either take responsibility for your life, or you can place blame on where you're at. And that taking responsibility in general is a much better method of of navigating reality, even if things aren't your fault. Because what are you going to do about it if if you if you can't do anything about it if it's if there's a fatalism to it? So I completely understand why she feels that one way of the viewing the world is way better than the other, mm. and I I actually agree with that way of viewing the world. Yeah, I, I do think that seeing yourself as an a, a, an empowered actor is far more psychologically beneficial to you as an individual. Yeah. It's totally. It's better for the world because It always
0: gives you somewhere to go.
1: Exactly, because like, oh, okay. Well, how am I going to change this or what can I do to fix this? It's like the difference between people who always bring problems to you and people who are like, "Oh, here's a solution. Yeah, here's something we can actually do that's practical."
0: Or like Eddie Willers, who can bring problems but also potential solutions. Yes, uh, <laughs>
1: those are those are awesome people because they flag the issue for you, but but they haven't just put the the emotional labor of coming up with <laughs> yes. the a- answer to you. Yeah. Um so I agree with that. And, and the, then bringing the
0: weight of also themselves being a problem because they're someone who brings you problems without solutions. Yes. So then suddenly they're <laughs> so a it's problem. like a twofer. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then the second way is how a person views themselves. And I think herein lies a lot of the problem with this philosophy because it elevates the independence of the individual to a state that I just don't see. Let's talk about like our senses and and Mm. facts. I just... No man is an island. Right. And children who don't get hugs and and cared for that are in in orphanages or whatever, we see permanent psychological damage. Yeah. Like, humans need one another. People need one another. And not just in these contractual relationships in which we... Like and so there's this elevated sense of egotism, You're right? In in objectivism. Oh,
0: well, I think that's the darkest part of that it.
1: That is the darkest part, exactly. My, what 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 frightens me about this book is it creates people who view themselves as Ubermen. Yeah. Right? It create well, I am the best. And like when you read this as a let's say a late teens <laughs> boy or girl, but it's it's interesting that it's mostly men who are attracted to this philosophy. And there's lots of studies to prove that. You guys can all Google it, but it's almost all men. Yeah. It's because men tend to be more egotistical. Yeah. And who doesn't want to hear that they're godlike in their abilities and all they need to do is to tap into their innate human potential and they can be the great innovators? But as we've talked about again on this podcast, we aren't all geniuses. (laughs) We're not all these. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah there's like <laughs> like what if you're kind of dumb
0: there's a total funny reading of this book where you read it you're, and if you go into reading it you're like I think I'm right about the world and then you read this book and this book tells you you're
1: right about the world yeah. and then you come away and be like I'm really fucking right about the world <laughs> it's and it's confirmation bias of the yin yin so suddenly you're like you there's a superior you're, you feel like you're superior right. to others and mm-hmm. this book breeds that yeah. to it like he just knows she's better than everybody else yeah right interesting though it seems to me like that isn't hugely motivating to her no but i but i think that is the danger of of this philosophy i think that will be motivating to people in real life though. yeah and well and then here's the real tragedy the tragedy the tragic character in this book is eddie yeah right because he's just not good enough to make it into yeah. the great people. Like Yeah,
0: I didn't understand that how at the end of the book he wasn't invited into Atlantis with everybody because there are a lot of lines earlier that say he even though he doesn't have the intelligence, he has the moral fiber right. to be allowed to be with the great people.
1: Yeah, except he just kinda chooses not to. And I think it's because he doesn't feel worthy. Or something along those lines.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was a little bit confused. Yeah. I I, I thought it didn't make sense that he didn't get invited to go with them. Right. Because he was actually an ally of Dagny and unwittingly of John Galt yes. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah,
1: agreed. So anyway, those... Okay, so yeah. Uh, so that, that's the first two. And then the third is how do, how do we act in the world? Mm. And I actually think this is the most optimistic side of this entire book because it's essentially the idea that we can... Solve the problems that face us. That we we have the capacity inside of ourselves to act and and change and innovate and create. And I mean, there is a plethora of evidence for this in reality. Everything that we have was invented, yeah, right.
0: And it came from somebody's mind. It came from somebody's Who had to mind. Make a plan. And I
1: think the manifestation of of ideas into physical reality is the most optimistic and exciting part of this book. Mm. And that's what, what gets people excited to read it. So like, I have this capacity. And you do, yeah. Yeah. just maybe not to, you know, transform the entire <laughs> train industry or whatever, <laughs> right? True, yeah.
0: You know, I, I I was thinking a lot about this because of how much emphasis she puts in the book on reason and rationality, which, you know, even conceptually, I am pretty flush with her, yeah, that. I'd agree you, you guys know? are
1: pretty similar. Yeah. On that.
0: yeah. But I still also am <laughs> I guess I would say entertained by her emphasis on these things in the book like hundreds of times over. The point is made, right? And I like I, I want to marry that kind of funny part to what you're saying in that part 3 of what you're of what you're talking about because it it just kind of clicked for me and there's like, "Oh, of course. Reason is better in practice than in theory. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? right! Once right. you actually have to make stuff in the world, reason manifestly shows its utility and right. its and its benefit. <laughs> but once you start like trying to theorize about, well, what is reason? Can we be reasonable? There's like all these hangups uh, conceptually and philosophically, and so which she doesn't lo-
1: really seem to care about. No, she doesn't. No.
0: However, philosophers have spun their tires for you know, millennia now on the efficacy of reason or not. and Yes, yeah. Just how we must be reasonable. What does it mean to be reasonable? Are you being reasonable when you say you want to be reasonable? Whereas that hopeful part you're talking about is the man or woman who goes out into the world and doesn't worry so much about what the theorists are doing with reason, but just go out and apply it to their projects. Yeah, and then <laughs> see results, Yeah, right? And so that's, I like that. And I also, I'm so, I love that you kind of, put it in those three categories that way because it's such a good columnization of them. Because I made a note specifically on that point of how you would see yourself if you were a Dagny or a Hank or an Ayn Rand, Right. us right, say. Right. Because, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot, a little bit on podcast and a lot off of podcast. Is intelligence the only authentic way to show sincere appreciation? Is that semantic? Uh, and I thought this was very binary. But that you admire it for the things you want to be admired for. So what I'm saying there is that I know we've talked about a comparison of elitism between Emerson and Nietzsche before. Yeah. And yeah. Nietzsche's take is the superioristic.
1: No, there's this select Rand's few. is the superioristic.
0: Not as much as Nietzsche, but I think more of that ilk than the Emersonian take, which I would want to be a spokesperson for, which is the more democratic Elitism, right? of calling out the highest because there is the line. It's one of my favorite. I think it's a chapter title actually, but it's one of my favorite lines in the book is, "For the best that is within us." Right, right, right. But Rand I think what doesn't, she doesn't address.
1: She, she doesn't talk very much about who that would apply to. No, and she doesn't. What she doesn't talk about is what if your best sucks? <laughs> what if like all of your efforts and everything you try to do, and you're just not that good at anything like these people exist. I thought and there isn't nearly enough psychology in this
0: book. I thought the one part of psychology done well in this book was when she talked about how the motivating force for someone to try to do their best is actually the point. Right, right? And so even if you well, no, fail so in your Well, so she says all this, but
1: then if you like get to the ethos of the book, where is the conversations about the like the really hard working individual who just Okay, so here's an example. We don't get their stories. There are people at all. whose IQs are so low that um, they have trouble folding paper and putting it in envelopes. Like these yeah, people exist. Sure. Right? And they're not that uncommon. Right? There's like a percentage of the population. Yeah. It's not like a tiny fraction. A percentage of the population that has a very <laughs> low IQ. All and- right. We want to we'll do an impromptu
0: study right in if you can <laughs> or Get someone to help you to write in if you're someone who can't lick your own envelopes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My point is, what does Ayn Rand's philosophy do? It's like survival of the fittest. She's incredibly Darwinian in the idea that it just, like, let them die. Yeah, but, like, that is such
0: a huge oversight of people who can't necessarily, like, who don't have the physical or psychological functioning. Like, that oversight is so huge. I feel like... If she has nothing to say for that or just says, fuck those people, like, she can't – could she be this taken seriously if she has no conception for those kind of people? We both
1: read the book. Where is the – are these people considered?
0: It's not – certainly not much, if any. I I don't know. Like, I feel like there are certain parts of the book where she's – Dagny or Hank are talking to, like,
1: their foremen – or their right, but I'm ta- I'm, th- Those are still competent people. I'm talking about like someone who suffers from like cerebral palsy. Right. Like, well, I, no, I think okay. I don't know. I, I can't
0: remember. But I, I feel like there was a part of the book where they talked about people who are severely handicapped can be helped. Right. I don't know. Maybe not.
1: I don't remember it. There
0: could be. A, mm. It's a very long book. Well, okay. I would say then, like, if we're if we're gonna superimpose our own additions. Into objectivism for mm. the sake of a more rounded world, view, a, a more yeah. rounded worldview. Is that even though objectivism or Randianism is more leaning towards the Nietzschean style of exclusive elitism than the Emersonian style of democratic elitism, I don't think it's totally shut the door on it on the democratic style. In that, I don't. Maybe s- it's just
1: not concerned with it. Yeah, but I, mean, I don't particularly this. But, but I,
0: but I don't think that that means it's it's in principle opposed to it if it was brought up now it might be two libertarians who don't think about this but let's say calling out the highest or the best like even those people that you're talking about who can't fold envelopes there is still something that you would call the best within them yes right well i think yeah i would say that (laughs) right i'm just
1: not sure rand would but i guess even though
0: to give it the best possible light even though she hasn't accentuated that she hasn't categorically opposed it either and so in a way that I feel like Nietzsche did a little bit more (laughs) that's why I say I don't think it's totally Nietzschean in her exclusivity of elites or competent people although (laughs) I'm bending over backwards to defend Rand even though I I feel mostly like I agree with you that I think that that's one of the biggest gaps of the book is her non-addressing of like the 90% of humanity that isn't (laughs) the ultra creators (laughs) or yeah. the government. Right. There's <laughs> you just, know? Yeah, there's a lot of people or that fall into points. those categories, yeah. right? This is kind of what I mean when I talk about highest common denominator, is that I do want to take all of the good parts of objectivism, which I think is mostly good parts, and kind of humanize it a little bit. I think that's what's missing, really. It feels like that's what's missing in this book, is the humanizing yeah, yeah. I, of it.
1: There's a humanizing around sexuality. There's a humanizing around feminism. There's yeah. a humanizing around competence and, mm-hmm. and meritorious labor and, yeah. and there's there's a lot of i guess if i'm being as charitable as i can to this book and i and i, I have a lot of charity for it i would say that it is one of probably the best articulation of a counter argument to some very severe it's oh i know she has the almost exact right diagnosis in my opinion of what's wrong with the world and mm and i'm not sure that her um solution her remedy yeah would actually be better yeah
0: i i don't think it's thorough enough yeah right i think it's a good start but it's so binary you're right it is so binary the the, the just the way the plot is set up
1: everything so, everything yeah. it's all right wrong black white good yeah. evil smart
0: dumb like and even the kind of prose is very not a ton of literary flair. <laughs> no, there's, although there
1: is uh, like I do believe there is some good literary flair in it. Yeah, but it's like the tree and like there there's some. Yeah,
0: but the thing is, <laughs> in a book that is almost eleven 1, hundred pages, there's not The a percent lot. <laughs> yeah. of yeah. like you're like oh this is great. It, it's like you're never confused about what's going on. I found myself less titillated by this book than a lot of other books but yeah I, okay well i'm glad that you noticed that too i like let's just say for sake of argument rand just had this oversight she's just like oh fuck i guess i just didn't think about this 90 percent of humanity uh i gotta figure out how to get them in the best way possible <laughs> that is not unfair that would to probably be emersonian would you <laughs> yeah, say uh, much more so than nietzschean right? right and i think that what is the glaring I think lacuna would be the right word there that that little gap is how when you're talking about those people who would see themselves egotistically or as superior, right? Who who misinterpret competence or elitism for superiorism, who think that they should budge people in the line cuz they know better kind of thing. She didn't build in enough of a strong defense mechanism against that psychology into her philosophy.
1: And, well, frankly, these people that are innovators or, or even uh, masterful artists are very frequently have a superiority complex. And I think that there is a reason that most of the... Oh, so so here's a fascinating question about her philosophy, right? Yeah. So her criticisms of religion are deep mm-hmm. and, and biting Yeah, and probably a lot of them have merit
0: Uh, there's a lot of intellectual strength to them. tons
1: but there's not a lot of emotional strength to them no and the the issue here is that empathy is being underestimated Mm -hmm. as a human emotion and and one of the things i tell people all the time in conversation is people come to me and they'll say well we just need to tell people the facts and if they just know the facts then they will understand and then they will be able to change their mind on this deeply held opinion that they have. And I'd say, you don't understand. Lots and lots of work has been done on this. Most people don't Mm. make decisions based on facts. Yeah, They make decisions based on their emotions.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think the
1: frustration that Ayn Rand is expressing here is, well, it should be facts. Mm. Like That's how we should be making our decisions, that we should live in a Spock-like universe where logic reigns supreme. Well, sorry— That's not human. Yeah. True. Um, No,
0: I take that point with no grains of salt, (laughs) right? Like that's so on the money. I think the biggest oversight she makes in this novel now, and again, I'm just trying to piece this together because I think there is a tiny little bit of, even if Ryan didn't do this on purpose, I'm interpreting it this way. So I'd build it like this. The, Antidote to that, obviously, uh, you and I agree, is not okay. Well, we need some sort of paternalistic body forcing that out of people, right? <laughs> like forcing the. Like, humanity frankly, my out personal of
1: people. views would be much closer to Rand, probably yes. than most philosophers yeah. in terms of politics, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, this is kind of the society's and the powerful people in the society's answer too this issue right oh, like well, the, it, the dr ferris it's the and easy the way because it's Wesley also kind of Mooch. what the people want yeah
1: right and yeah. this is her criticism and this is why i actually think her philosophy has stood the test of time and why it's so interesting to people because there is so much truth in it yeah. and it's that people don't want to do the hard work right i mean this is why jordan peterson's so popular go mm-hmm. clean your room what a yeah. s- silly thing to say <laughs> like oh, of course you should clean your room yeah. and yet people just aren't doing it and if you look at um the psychology behind this like we are beings that seek comfort mm. right we we want to be comfortable right. and yet comfort is often our demise mm. i think if i had to like boil down my philosophy to one sentence yeah. it would be life is hard yeah but life depends on it being hard yeah, right you like actual life <laughs> like living well, the, the is impossible
0: evolution couldn't have happened without pressures yeah
1: and light, so so that pressure actually produces what I argue is the most beautiful thing in the universe, which is life. Yes, yeah. So, okay, here
0: is the convoluted but possible way out of this quagmire, I think, without abandoning objectivism, at least most of it, or all of it, its most important parts is. Okay, I'm reading this book. I'm getting a lot of facts. Am I just totally turned off? Or anyone reading this, even someone who maybe has a lower IQ— No, there's still something being called out of me in this book. Like there is still something where I'm inspired a little bit in some weird way. I think it's mostly in Hank's character that I get that. When I see what Hank does in this book, I'm not like, oh, what a selfish asshole. I'm like, "Ah, that guy's inspiring. Yeah. (laughs) The way he handles adversity and the way he handles his family and the way he handles all of his problems. I don't think without Hank, this book would work no you know because i think he is actually the character that embodies the hero that we're looking for with a calling out of me as the reader to want to aspire to that as opposed to as opposed to me feeling lectured like
1: i should be that and i think the reason that he's able to do that is he has enough not self-doubt because he doesn't really have self-doubt but he is he cares enough about the the external pressures of living in community, let's call it, that he feels obligations, that I think we all feel, and how he reacts to those obligations are what we find inspiring. Right. Well,
0: and maybe this is undermining to Rand herself in her thesis of this book, but I don't think it's undermining to her philosophy fundamentally, is that Hank the most, and Dagny a little bit too, Hank is the character that least wants to leave the world yeah he seems right. to, for some weird reason <laughs> to love it he is the one who embodies he enjoys the pressure he enjoys there's almost a little bit of gamesmanship he's feeling about all of the regulations coming down on him from the government but he doesn't want to abandon it and so i think that's part of the inspiration is that even though hank has just as much if not more reason to want to go to Atlantis and shrug and leave the world. He's like the last one to do it. Now, of course, he does, and it's a kind of a bleak
1: end. It's a very bleak end to the book. Well, but, but maybe, I think, and, and I think she does that on purpose because, like, he's the hero we all want. And yeah. He's the hero who. Who is willing to keep fighting the good fight? But even he has to. But even he has to. Well,
0: and I mean, like to be fair, maybe to the narrative, there would be an extreme end where you just can't, like you just can't function in the world anymore. It's too hard. It's
1: not just fair to the narrative. Like this is the most interesting thing about her philosophy. It happens. Yeah, it has happened. Right, it will happen again. People quitting. Oh yeah, like look at Argentina. So, right. like, in the early 1900s, Argentina was on track to be exactly the same size as Canada economically, to be a powerhouse. They called it the Paris of the of the West. Uh, they, well, they called Buenos Aires the Paris of the West. And through poor government policy and corruption, they now are what they are, and Canada is what it is. And this can happen. It can happen anywhere. Right. And it happens because economies are not, I mean, there are rules that reality has rules. Yeah. And if you (laughs) try to violate those rules, true, there there are consequences. If you jump off a building, you're going to fall. Gravity is going to have its way with you. Right. There are economic laws that cannot be violated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then I guess the distinction I'd
0: want to make, and this maybe is the distinction between Nietzsche and Emerson is calling out of greatness versus lecturing it out of another person. And by calling it out, I mean, this is language that is used in the church, right? Like calling out something in a person, like you find your calling, (laughs) you figure out, I call it highest common denominator. Like what is it when someone's functioning on all cylinders? I do see it in Hank. And so I see it in the book. So I see it in her philosophy. And so I see it as possibly not axiomatically
1: incompatible
0: with objectivism. Right. Uh, But it is a sliver. Like it's definitely not the no, main course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and,
1: and I, I agree. I think well, I think that's the quality that makes it so easy to to latch onto this philosophy is that when people when when you read it, you don't feel like it's easy. Yeah, you yes. feel like someone's calling you to to do something important and hard mm-hmm. and to, to to conquer yourself. Yeah, and 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 through conquering yourself to conquer the world, and that's kind of the the implicit promise of this book right, is if you can conquer your psychological issues with those around you, which is essentially the, the pressures they're putting on you that are holding you back the chains. If you can, if you can be free mm-hmm. uh, now, whether that's the case or not, I guess is up for debate.
0: Why don't we go a little bit more in depth into our two lead characters? All right, let's do it. I guess we'll start with Dagny. Dagny Taggart. First thing I, it's, it's first thing. I mean, it's it's like 230 pages in, but one of the first main revelations of the book or big plot points is when she's trying to build the John Galt line.
1: Yes, right. Yeah.
0: The uh, the uh, new used to be called the Rio Norte train line, I think, somewhere in Colorado, and it was now, and she was like being taken off the books officially as VP to build this kind of new line with this new metal, <laughs> the reared metal, a new bridge. And no one wanted to take responsibility for it, and she was t- she was the only person taking responsibility for it. That's just why she had to like not be part of Taggart Continental in case they got sued, and Jim, her brother, just being such a pussy about it the whole time. And yet, there's a uh, one of the best scenes of the book is when they go on the ride, and it's like her over and the Hank bridge, on yeah, the bridge, and just reveling. In the experience of a of an accomplishment, like a like a ground up, she's responsible for accomplishment and seeing the benefit. And it's a great scene. There's all these reporters who show up for the grand opening of the line, and Rand makes a funny little note, which I think is an interesting psychological one. In a book not <laughs> regnant with psychological notes, is how the reporters are asking all of the kind of um, boilerplate run-of-the-mill questions and yet as they go on human nature takes over and they start asking real questions out of curiosity of their own the reporters when they start asking the questions are representing their institution so they're speak like they're the mouthpiece for whatever role they're playing but eventually they go from being their role to their personality because they're actually super interested organically in what dagny has done right yes, so the questions yeah. become much more authentic in that way and i liked that insight too is that yeah when we're mouthpieces or a journalist when we're a, when we're a title that actually is uh, <laughs> Uh, a social construction that comes after. And yet we were people first and curiosity is more primary than that. And so the real questions start happening. Anyway, I liked that part of it, but I wanted to just, I guess, bring up this idea of reveling in the success of a project. Now, especially if no one believes in you, but even if everyone does believe in you, like just how satisfying it is. And I think this works not just for Dagny, although she's representative of this part of the book, this works when, you aren't doing it for the exhilaration of success, but you're doing it because you love the challenge
1: and figuring it so out. You're, you're focusing on the task yeah. as opposed to focusing on the outcome. Yeah.
0: So there's this line in a Jimmy E. World song called Love Never. Maybe I bring it up before where um you got to want the work more than the reward. Hmm. And Dagny loves the work more than the reward. Now, what's important is it doesn't mean you don't enjoy the reward. It just means that's not what sustains you in the dark nights of the hard work. <laughs>
1: well, and there's the opposite. I mean, I think this is kind of what does this book celebrate most? It's the people who love the work. Yes, right, yes. Not the outcome, Yeah. right?
0: which what? is why they're so miffed when all of the weak characters are saying you're just doing this for th- you just want the glory. Yeah. And and it's it's like, like no. What are you talking no, wh- about? But that's projection
1: from the weak characters, <laughs> right? Cuz that's why they would do something. But that's why it's so funny. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, exactly. And it's well, I've mentioned this line before, but I think it applies here too in in Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, there's a line about Emory in which uh, he says there was always the be- or it was sorry, it was always the becoming he dreamed of, yeah. never the being. Yes. That mentality. I've I mean, I have to be frank. Like, when I read Alice Shrugged for the first time, it was a slap in the face, primarily because it was always the becoming I dreamed of and never the being. Yeah. It wasn't the the actual doing of the work that interested me in my mm-hmm. dreams. It was the being of the thing. Yeah. Right. It wasn't the doing. I mean, that's the great wake up call of this book. That's why people love this book because mm-hmm. there is so much more pleasure yeah. in the doing yeah. of things than the being of a thing
0: right which is why i can't help but roll my eyes but i think it's you miss the point if you look at someone like elon musk and you say Oh, why do you just want to be famous right (laughs) like why are you just taking all the credit for this or you know it's like you've fundamentally misunderstood the life goal of someone like elon musk or someone like yeah uh, the the first person interpretation of reality that's going on for something like that is they would never get to that point if it was for the recognition no. it's impossible no. because you are chasing a ghost and it's just candy so even if you eat it all the time you just get sick there's not there's nothing sustainable or yeah it does sustain to it. you it's no. like
1: one of the things you've talked about a lot probably off podcast more than on but is you find the things you love to do and you try to do those every day mm-hmm and that's how you're building the life that you want to live. Yeah. It's not, well, this is the thing that I want, or this is the relationship that I want, or this right. is, you're not looking outward for, you're, you're saying, well, I like doing this thing, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get better at it. I, uh, I like making stuff more than having it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, so, and I think, and that's these characters, yeah, that's it. Yes. Exactly. And, and this is one of the things that I love about capitalism that I feel like these people who are like, eat the rich, don't get money for these people is not what it is for you right right yeah it's not the same for them because they're not doing it for the money money's just for some of them money's a way of keeping a score and there are characters in this book who are doing it for the money and those are the people that i despise i Mm. call them like the crony capitalists like they're not real capitalists but the people who are doing things for the love of doing them and this goes to artists too. This goes to like directors and actors, people who love their craft so mm-hmm. much that they Yeah that it's the doing of the craft. I mean, I think it's Jim Carrey said once, I wish everyone would achieve their dreams early in life so they'd realize how hollow they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is antithetical to so much of our culture right now, which says, you know, pursue your dreams, live for your dreams, go after your dreams. Right. Okay. That's well, the wrong way of
0: thinking about things. I mean, like, and that's David Foster Wallace insight there too where he talked in a bunch of interviews about how you know he spent all this time writing infinite jest and it was a huge hit like it was beyond his wildest dreams of success and yet his life didn't really change that much like he got oppressed for a while but he still like was beleaguered by the things that beleaguered him before mentally <laughs> you know yeah, like, like he he, it's he not, was still there yeah he he got the paramount of what could be considered a, su- a successful book And he became a successful, well-known person in that arena. And yet he's still like life goes on.
1: (laughs) You know, you're still worn down by the things that wear you down. Well, one of the things I've always thought about is you can't run from yourself. Mm -hmm. And so often we try. But like this is one of the beautiful things about Ayn Rand's philosophy is her point is why would you run from yourself? Yeah. Like yeah. build yourself up, mm-hmm. like pursue these things. Yeah, I think that's a... The best that is within you. The best that is within you. And then that's what you do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I have a personal anecdote on this is that I, I grew up, I still do, but growing up, music played such a central role to my life. And I was never disciplined enough to learn how to play guitar until I was 22. And it was only because I... Really wanted to impress this one girl. <laughs> <laughs> women have a great just, way of making yeah, yeah. men do things. Well, I think, who is it? There was it? There's some guy on Sam Harris's podcast one time, Lawrence Wright, maybe, who said, Well, just think about how much culture is made by young men trying to impress young women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had this conception of music and specifically playing guitar and singing that it was okay. I want to be a rock star, right? Like I want to be on the stage having thousands of adoring fans scream my name. And as soon as I started learning and actually playing guitar, I realized that's such bullshit. I don't want that at all. I want to learn a new song. I want to learn how to play this riff. I want to learn how to do this with the strings and I still enjoy performing and having people in like music when I play it, but I realized that the most successful musicians, the ones who can sustain a career and actually are beloved, are the ones who care so deeply about their craft and how they do it and what they're working on and how they get some joy out of the music that isn't dependent on other people's adoration.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know? And I think that insight I, – I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of what right. you just said. I don't I don't right. think it's possible yeah. because I say this from a personal anecdote myself. Nothing but misery will come mm-hmm. from any other way of living. Yeah. If you don't love what you do – like this is something that, that, that baffles me. So I was recently in a conversation uh, and someone asked me why I work so much. And I said, until I find – some well, this was in a dating context. Sure. I said until I find someone that I would rather spend time with than work, which I do love. Yeah. I mean, then why would I do that other thing? Mm-hmm. Like I love my work. Mm-hmm. Now it's draining and difficult, and there's emotions attached to it, and there's all kinds of things. On that note, but like, if you don't love what you do, yeah, like like life is too <laughs> short. Well, I yeah, I mean, I would just make a. I was just thinking about
0: this, Jimmy World. Talked about them lots. Same four guys since 1995. They're not super famous. They're known, but they're not super famous. They just keep making great songs. They work hard. They're not really partiers. You know, they they probably maybe drank a bit more when they're 20s, but they're in their 40s now. And they're, they're just... Every interview, they're clearly committed to their music and to each other. And their songs are so thoughtful, you know? Compare that to a band like Motley Crue, right? Who just... <laughs> Crashed and burned, like, so many drugs. Just the kind of stereotypical rock and roll life. Their songs are fun, but there's no depth to them at all, right? Girls, girls, girls. Or, you know, Dr. feel good. Motley Crue, I mean, I don't know, and I only know really Motley Crue from the <laughs> Netflix movie and a little bit of read about them, but they're a band that's like, was in it for the auxiliary reasons, right? Like, the drugs, rock and roll, sex shallowness, superficiality of the rock star life, they were around for like a decade and a half, and they're not going to have a lasting impact on music or people's souls. (laughs) They're not going to have a lasting impact on people's souls. Which really should be
1: what an artist is trying to do, (laughs) I I argue.
0: Uh, Jimmy World will, and lots of other bands will, that are maybe not as flashy or in-your-face. Dagny is not as flashy or in-your-face as Jim or other (laughs) purveyors of the more auxiliary parts of the job. But she makes an impact on all those people at the line, and she makes an impact on all the people in the... Everyone knows who the real brains and heart are in Tiger Transcontinental, right? So those hidden ma- majority that aren't referenced at all the book, they know who their hero is too, at least we're led to believe. And I think that there's a real-life parallel there.
1: Yeah, I know? like that. I think I, that's, an, that's an insight that I hadn't articulated that you brought out, <laughs> which I just love. But you feel, right? Oh, like 100%. Yeah. Like I... You know. I I think you've even articulated something that I've not been able to articulate to articulate to myself why the doing of the thing needs to be mm-hmm. the whole point.
0: Yeah. Well I I was talking to a friend about our podcast actually one time. And it was like it's fun when people like it and listen to it, but like that's the candy and the meat and the potatoes and the vegetables is the reading, note taking, recording, <laughs> editing. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't live off the candy; you no. have to live off the meat and the potatoes. So, like, that's the exhilarating part. And it doesn't mean you demonize the candy; it's just moderation, right? So, yeah, anyway, yeah. Okay, she has some of the best lines in the book, but probably my favorite Dagny line is when Lillian is around her and Hank at a party, and Lillian is Hank's wife. And Lillian is one of the great themes of this book is all of the people who are trying to hint at something without directly saying it. Like there's no clear, concise language for all of our weak people. They're all like hinting and euphemisms and half measures and double talk and all that kind of stuff. And so Lillian is humming and hawing, nibbling around the idea that maybe Dagny and Hank are having an affair, just like passive aggressive comments, etc. And just this awesome line that Dagny says, Mrs. Reardon, is this the manner and place in which you choose to suggest that I'm sleeping with your husband? <laughs> yeah. So her lack of mincing. And so, like that, I think that line is representative of probably my favorite part about Dagny and Hank, too, and all of the strong characters. So we might as well just talk about them for them all is that none of them euphemize or use unclear words or language, they go straight to the heart of the matter. And I admire that greatly. And do you have any thoughts on that specific scene, or like why Dagny is so like that, and what it might be saying about this more philosophy more generally? Hmm. Which part of objectivism that aspect of? Well, I think that clarity that, that, taps um, into
1: that's more taking full responsibility because she's taking responsibility in that moment, but she's saying, "Are you? Do you want to take responsibility for what you're for what you're actually doing right now?" Yes, because if you do. I'll play ball, yeah, but like, just be aware that I'm going to play ball, and like, I don't play <laughs> games by your rules. I play games by my rules, and yes. it's not going to be fun, yeah. right? So I like that, and I I try to live my life that way, sure. But I mean, again, I think the disconnect for me is it's like this is not how a real person would live. Would someone be feeling guiltless about committing adultery?
0: Well, I don't think Hank feels guiltless no he
1: doesn't well
0: but he well he doesn't feel guiltless until he
1: sees how much better dagny is than lillian yeah and (laughs) And then then he he, feels guiltless well then he feels bad justified he feels justified and but there's a difference between feeling justified and guiltless i think yeah and yeah i just they're too perfect like people the that bothers me a little bit like she's too perfect in her in her you know it's it's kind of like you know when you're lying in bed and maybe you've had some kind of confrontation with someone you then you're like oh i should have said that yeah right it's like she always says that yes like in the in any given true moment.
0: true well yeah okay so there's a perhaps there is an unrealistic
1: i guess expectation um, of people in the moment My suspension of, of disbelief is like <laughs> can't go that hard I, I can't go that far okay yeah. well okay i'll frame it a bit different then
0: so i'm working through this idea of why do all the dirty little secrets of people's lives have to be dirty little secrets why can't they be dirty normal truths (laughs) (laughs) and so i've this is much beyond even this book exactly but i was just even thinking today because i'm starting to work on this idea in an essay about maybe we're not post-truth but we might be post-irony right (laughs) in our society and obviously this all kind of comes from the 2016 election and trump and all of that kind of stuff and i feel like i had an insight today where just while i was writing about it i feel like trump maybe this has been talked about him but i haven't heard it very much that i don't think trump (laughs) you know how they say like he says it like it is i don't think trump says it like it is exactly but i do think he says it like he is Right. And there's no gap between what you perceive of him on the TV and what he's really like when he's not on the TV. And so that is what I think people like. People like and won him an election, essentially, is the gap between what people thought Hillary Clinton was like on screen and off screen was so huge. And I'll develop this more, but basically, why irony works on someone like Clinton and it wouldn't on Trump, is that irony actually highlights that gap and puts light on it and shows you what that person tried to keep in the dark. Yeah. So parody and irony and sarcasm and satire do that. Someone like Trump, all parody is doing is shining a light on something Trump has already decided to shine a light on himself for all of us. Well, so you're not getting and, any yeah, new going information. Going on to that
1: point, I think people have become so tired of the media and of politicians Right. Who who they think are telling them what they want to hear? Yeah. That when Trump didn't tell them what people wanted to hear, just told them what he thought. Mm-hmm. Whatever little thought enters his mind, he'll just say it. Like yeah. in the debate, where he's like, "You'd be in jail." Yeah. Everyone knows that was an authentic statement by him. That was not some it's planned such a, quip. Right. It would be such a bad strategy if it was a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's and that's the thing. It but people loved it because yeah. they're like oh man yeah. he just says it yeah. right Yeah, and and we've all been there where we just say shit so how do
0: I connect this to Atlas Shrugged okay in this scene with Dagny sure maybe now we have to confront the fact that maybe I'm sleeping with your husband Miss Mrs. Reardon however we have skipped over a hundred steps to get there yeah right we have skipped over the all the double talk and euphemism and passive aggression about rumors <laughs> So we've right. sa- we've at least saved ourselves some time, and now at least with the way that Dagny phrased it, anything she says subsequently, even if you don't like it, you're not going to think that she's having you on, no, in one form or another, right? no. And so, this is a complicated idea that I'm not totally sure of yet, but I am trying to bring forth this idea of making it more okay for us to be airing of our dirty laundry of our lives. Because it's going to happen anyway. Well, yeah, it's already, <laughs> Privacy already happening. Privacy yeah. is going. So like, things like affairs would be have to be more maturely handled because they're going to come out. Right. So wh- who are you fooling by being like, oh, people are unfaithful to each other. Like, okay, grow up. We know that this happens. If we want to solve the problem, we have to like not be little kids about it. And part of not being little kids about it is saying like, well, if you want to
1: talk about it, let's do it. You know, I love <laughs> this idea. How do okay? So there's a first mover problem. We have a prisoner's <laughs> dilemma. Sure. Right. So yeah, there's a there's sacred canopies, right? I think it boils the problem boils down to one of identity, mm-hmm. and that so frequently identity is tied to rule following. Yeah, and the messy side of the human condition is that we're not actually very good at following rules, even rules that we say we want to follow that we personally impose exercise. Why is it like a great (laughs) joke that like nobody actually goes, everyone says they want to Mm -hmm. personally when I do, I feel better. Yeah. And yet for some reason, I don't, I'm not capable of following this rule that I personally want to set for myself. Right. Let's say that that fundamental truth of being human—one that has been um, highlighted by sages for for millennia, like mm-hmm. since the dawn of human consciousness—we've been talking about this. Yeah. Well, then we kind of get this dichotomy where we 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 praise the rules because we're praising the ideal, we're praising the Platonic <laughs> idea of a thing, sure. as opposed to the messy normal. Re- physical reality of a thing yeah and if we stop pray i think there's a belief that if we stop praising the platonic ideal that we won't keep trying to strive for anything where will we be going (laughs) what will our direction be
0: yeah the but yeah so i guess the more modest piecemeal stuff is
1: uh, potentially less inspiring to people i think so (laughs) and if we're all like oh let's be our just most authentic selves like some of it's pretty embarrassing, yeah. Right? But, I, and but not I, embarrassing in the in the sense of oh the shame, but it's like well that really shouldn't be. Why are we even talking about that, right? Well,
0: because I th- I I guess I would say that I, why we should talk about that stuff is it it brings it is more grounded and it it's more honest about what we are. So it's not going to be as startling when we're <laughs> clearly crash and burn okay, so when we try what, to pretend I,
1: more than we are. And I think what you're getting at with this, and I think it's incredibly noble and right, is, okay, so right now, things that we are ashamed of are being used against us to try to destroy us, The cancel culture, all this stuff, yeah. right? But it isn't even necessarily things we're embarrassed about. It's just mm-hmm. finding something that maybe the orthodoxy of the day condemns and then blowing it up out of proportion. But really, the problem is, is I agree. I guess... Here's my question to you. Okay. I agree that that's a problem. And my sense is that that's the problem you're trying to address. Is the root of the problem that we hide these things, or is the root of the problem the orthodoxies that are being used to attack heretics?
0: I think the root of all of this problem stems from all of the different ways people have made other people feel bad about that kind of stuff which
1: is is such a great thing in atlas Shrugged, right <laughs> yeah. like the things that people f- that hank feels bad about are the things that are being used to control him exactly
0: and it's not even just embarrassing stuff like i'm i'm thinking i, I remember a couple of years ago maybe a year and a half ago I was sitting at, at some work thing and there's a discussion about leadership and leadership was compared to an iceberg like everyone sees the top bit but no you don't see all of the bottom stuff in leadership that goes under under the water right and i my I honest like honest to god my first reaction to that i was like well why why not just tell everyone that's going on underneath the people who are going to hear the ugly truth about stuff that our leaders do i'm talking to those people and saying be tougher grow up deal with it as adults get a backbone and be worthy of your leaders to be the ones who if they do mess up in some legitimate way you can i think about it like this like yeah, one person in a room of 100 at a school board meeting unimpressed with the education. You're not going to get much traction, but you're going to give it more traction if there's seven people with their arms crossed unimpressed. You're going to get even more traction if there's 15 people unimpressed with their arms crossed. And if everyone's unimpressed. What if unimpressed. you get to the point where there's 75 people out of the 100 who are unimpressed with their arms crossed? Now, the people who are unimpressed with bad leadership and whinging and double talk and euphemism just haven't been assertive enough yet. <laughs> in the world and have enough of a backbone to say like you're a politician. Like, look, I, um, I made a deal with the other party because otherwise nothing was going to get done and your life was going to be worse. If you think that makes me a a flip flopper, I don't give a shit (laughs) (laughs) because here's a better deal. Here's why. And there's a leap of faith there. I understand that. What I'm saying is that I actually do think the world is getting smarter or at least um informed maybe more informed and i think the percentage of people who are unimpressed with the double talk and their arms are crossed and their toes are tapping and they're frustrated i do think that percentage of people is growing and i think part of that growth is the kind of atlas shrugged books of the world the south parks of the world the jordan peterson's of the world who don't treat their audiences as dumb you know And so, look, (laughs) we had to cut the budget because we have no funding. If you wanted to, if you want to cut your salary, feel free to say that. Otherwise, you know, your complaints aren't warranted. Like, just this kind of hard nosed, but not uncaring approach to talking about the underbelly of the things we have to do to grease the world to make things happen. I'll admit to one of myself <laughs> even yeah, here right. and and why it helps because I'm a human and it's human nature. There are some kids at work I like more than others. Just the way right. that they are, I prefer their personalities and their attitudes. Now, it's actually more important to admit that because admitting that allows me to make conscious my own biases towards kids so that I can consciously understand how I might be treating a kid who I might not like more unfairly. And so realizing that I can apply fairness and a kind of a a, a single standard to everyone so that I don't accidentally and unconsciously give preferential treatment to a kid I just happen to like more. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now that's – you're not going to hear many people at my work admit to that. Right. (laughs) Because you're not supposed to. right? Right. Because we're supposed to be these perfect people who don't have preferences. Wow. you know, so it's like parents. <laughs> You're the wrong species. They probably do have, <laughs> of course, favorite they children, do. But of they would course, never they. I always like that. to say I was not the favorite, but I was definitely not the least favorite either. <laughs> so take this to social media. We're going to be facing a situation where, oh, you uh, when you were
1: 12 years old, <sighs> you you know, yeah. you got said that's gay or something,
0: <laughs> right? Or like just like, oh, you got caught masturbating at a hotel once, right? <laughs> right? Or you had gambling problems in your history. Like just this kind of, I guess it's a social maturing where things that aren't egregious, moral infractions aren't treated as if they were. Yes. Like the proportional kind of response to, Oh, okay. I don't know. Like probably so many politicians have shitty things in their history. Right. Probably so many of them had hookers or something. Right. Right. Like, I don't think that's a deal breaker for a good policy.
1: I know, right?
0: I know. Now, that's a bit of a rant, I guess. I think it's it's just kind of more honesty on the ugly things that we kind of all do sometimes and being more steadfastly not impressed with people who try to cash in on that for their own gain.
1: Yeah, it would be nice if someone just came out. I guess that's really what you're talking about with this quote where she's like, is this really the place you want to do this? Like, mm-hmm. It would be nice if we could be like, so this is this is how you're gonna play it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or like if we're gonna talk about something like Twitter, someone gets fake outrage
0: on Twitter. Instead of having so many people piling on and saying, "Yeah, you're a terrible person." Yeah. 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 Just having a response to be like, "Shut the fuck up. This is not that big of a deal. Get a life." Yeah. <laughs> like and just having imagine because I guarantee you there are just as many people who feel that way as who feel outraged or are jumping on or getting virtue signaling brownie points or whatever. Right. But imagine if that could happen. Like there were just as many comments as saying, you're just trying to stir a pot that doesn't need to be stirred. People all have these ugly things in their life. Here's an example for this person. I bet you, if you aired your dirty laundry, we wouldn't hold it against you because we're more mature than you. So shut the fuck up. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be great. Like that is the antidote to, so many of our modern problems, I think. And I don't even just think that this is like something we should do. I think this is something we have to learn how to do because we have no, we're not going back. The genie's not going back in the bottle. Social media is not going to go away. No. It's not, we're going to, we're not going to get less intimate knowledge about our neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, anyway,
1: that got on longer than I thought and <laughs> isn't really about Dagny, but you know what I mean. No, I think it is <laughs> sort of about her approach. Yeah. To addressing what I think, I mean, the reason that Lillian is is doing the euphemisms and the double talk and all that is because she thinks that this is something that Dagny should be horribly ashamed of. Yeah. And that if it were exposed, Dagny would be irreparably – her reputation would be ruined, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, that's – like, it's a threat. It is a threat of violence. Yes,
0: it's a total threat. And it's not just Dagny, but I think she has the most piercing lines. And I think probably it's because Dagny is the most um, one-to-one character of Ayn Rand herself that she's yes. self-portraying. And yeah. so, of course, you're going to give yourself the best lines. Of <laughs> <Right>? course. <laughs> Hank's Hank has some great lines, but Hank's lines are, they don't seem as sassy in a way. Like, I don't like to call Dagny sassy, It just seems like it's a little bit sassy. I think a lot of the double standard of uh, Hank and Dagny's affair stems from the era where it was much more shameful for the woman. I think that's true. And so I think that's why Dagny's responses are so much more impressive because she has more to lose. So her strength in there is funnier and stronger and more intelligent in a way that Hank's doesn't have to be because of the social norms. And it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah. I like this. Everything in her represents an ideal. Is this possible? <laughs> so this is what you were talking yeah. about earlier, yeah, right? it's annoying. I yeah. think that that is, yeah, one of the fatal flaws of th- that specific. So the last little part on Dagny here is when it is discovered that she is in fact having an affair with Hank, she is invited onto the like national radio program with <laughs> Uh, was it Bertram Scudder? Also, just the names. I hey, know, just Scudder. the name. <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> all of our heroes have hard, strong consonant names: Dagny Taggart, Hank Reardon, John Galt, Francisco D'Anconia. All of our weaklings have soft uh, consonant names like Floyd Ferris and Wesley Mouch <laughs> and Bertram Scudder and and um, what was the um, writer? Balf Eubank, right? Just like, so like even by the names, you can tell who you're supposed to like (laughs) or not. So anyway, probably my favorite Dagny moment in the book is that she's invited onto this radio program to be basically interrogated and again, implicated, but not accused of being in an affair with Hank. And it's actually her that reveals to the world, I'm having an affair. I'm his mistress and it's owning her own decisions and she's proud of it and, and she's she, proud yeah. of it yeah and so it's kind of like that line from game of thrones in the very first episode when Tyrion is talking to john snow and john snow is kind of a little bit annoyed that he is known as the bastard or i can't remember exactly but he's it's a weakness right and Tyrion tells him
1: take your weakness and use it as a breastplate then no one can hurt you with it. There's a, there's a great <laughs> uh, line in one of my favorite songs by stars. Uh, it's called, um, uh, hold on when you get glove and let go when you give it. But the line is, uh, take the weakest thing in you and beat the bastards.
0: Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, that's also, I think, an eight mile <laughs> in one right. of the rap battles, the uh, rabbit or, you know, Eminem talks about how he has no money and he's worthless. So what are you going to make fun of me now? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm still here and I'm still smart. <laughs>
1: yeah, like I still have these qualities.
0: And I like that kind of radical ownership, radical self-ownership of your own decisions. And again, maybe this is an example of what I just talked about, right? Like she, she is not embarrassed or unforthcoming about her own decision making in her life and like that's admirable and i'm like even there's some things in i've done in my life that like i've never done anything super terrible or super immoral but there's a few things i've done where i was like i don't know if i'd want people to know about that right so there's something really admirable about dagny and her approach i don't know does that scene leave any thoughts on
1: you uh, I guess because of my upbringing When I first read this book and, and even my own moral code I do struggle with Owning your shit Because I don't like my shit Right? There's things I don't like about myself and, Yeah. And I think The strength that she has in that Is the strength that I long for And right. I guess I, if I'm striving For one moral characteristic yeah. It would be Self love
0: well, because she's not ashamed of no. her decision. She, like, she, I don't, she's, I won't say she loves Hank, but she she loves him enough and she, she respects, admires, admires she admires and respects him and they had a, a, a great time together. Right, yeah. Although even <laughs> another unrealistic thing about Dagny is the way that she talks about love. It's very weird. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. when it comes to John. But it's neither here nor there for this point is that she, I wanted to do this and I did it. So now the ball's in your court. And what is such a great dichotomy in the book is how that leaves everyone who's trying to trap her powerless, bereft, bereft of any action. So like hilariously in the book, the only fallout from that situation is that they fire Bertrand Scudder for asking a dumb question (laughs) or like, (laughs) so like everyone else who is trying to play the game And trying to weasel in and find the right power relationships, they're like, "Oh, now this has been exposed.
1: We've lost (laughs) our leverage. Like, what are you doing?" Yeah,
0: and so they don't even try to take on Dagny. She's so far above their game that they can't even figure out how to trap her in it. Yeah, you know, exactly. In a way that they were trying to trap Hank, and they kind of did because of his guilt. Right, they did trap her. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and that was that's an interesting element of the whole Hank.
0: I guess Hank's guilt. Well, we'll get into that more next time. So, we were anticipating this, but there is so much to talk about Alice Shrugs. This is going to have to be a two-parter. Yeah. (laughs) So, next episode, we're going to talk about Hank and Francisco and John Galt, and then all of the kind of villain characters, and then just a wrap-up on some of the ideas in the book. But it's going to be way too long for one episode. So, we're going to stop now and do another part very soon. So, anyway... Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And uh, from the best that is within us to the best that is within you. And uh, whatever that may be, have a good one.